Coming up on this week's show, how to build your own internet time machine. A new Lego games console is coming. And we chat with producer and audio director for Sierra, Interplay and Midway, Ken Allen. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, we're going to tell you more about their latest book. It's so good. Go Straight, The Ultimate Guide to Side-Scrolling Beat-Em-Ups, written by award-winning author Dave Cook, and over 450 pages takes you into a deep dive on games like Double Dragon, Golden Axe, Final Fight, and lots more as well. We'll tell you more about that in just a bit, but you can check it out for yourself and the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 325, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to our first episode in May 2022, flying by. And we've got another amazing show where we're going to bring you up to speed on everything that's been happening in the world of retro gaming and tech over the last seven days. Of course, an incredible guest in the second half of the show. And uh, Ravi Abbott, who is now back in that glorious high-definition audio, I'm hoping with not too much of that New York attitude. You're back from your travels, <laughs> Ravi? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm still massively jet-lagged, so I'm kind of between time zones, but... Uh, I came back with a ton of vintage video games and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I, I had a good time out there, definitely. You didn't get stopped at the airport for uh, bringing a Magnavox Odyssey through uh, airport security? <laughs> no, there. no. They were like, oh, nice. <laughs> well, you know, your travels just sounded incredible. And it's really weird because, you know, we get guests on all the time from America with no problem at all. But I was actually quite worried that we we're going to be able to make it work with you. But I think the last few episodes... Actually worked quite well, you know, on your travels. In yeah, the hotel and it was it was fun to chat to you guys and catch up. But um, you know, I've not been the only person that's kind of been a uh, looking at retro stuff and bumping into people. I hear hear you bumped into a listener, Joe, the other day. Oh God, drop me in it there. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, <laughs> Wait, I were you caught... walking around in your I'm I'm handsome Joe from the retro hour T-shirt, <laughs> my retro hour hat, and like my retro hour like trousers. I'm like, no, I went to um. For the first time in two years, actually, we worked out it was like the two-year anniversary as well of me going to a car boot sale. I went to Tansley Car Boot in Derbyshire yesterday on Bank Holiday Monday because we're recording it on Tuesday. And uh, <laughs> me and my friend, we both our families went and, uh, you know, my wife and his wife are off with our daughters. And then me and him just run around looking for retro games kind of thing. And we were at a particular stand and I heard somebody go, that's Joe Fox on the retro hour. And I turned around and uh, I'll use his Instagram name, but Woody88, who uh, who is a big supporter of the uh, the Retro Hour and comes on every single uh, hangout, every single month, yeah, top uh, was just like, oh my days, it's, it's Joe. And I was just like, you're right, man. And I was taken back by it for a second. Like, I was just like, oh, wow, like kind of thing, like somebody's talking to me about the Retro Hour. Um, but it was really cool and it is nice when it happens. And he says, did it happen often? I says, it doesn't happen to me, but it happens to Dan a lot. You know, it does happen to Dan a lot. I'm not too sure about Ravi. Um, Ravi gets spotted on like random nights out. Oh yeah, you <laughs> do, don't you? Actually, <laughs> kebab shops at two a.m. Well, 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 the main thing is as well. Did did uh, you kind of have to fight over the bargains with the listener, or did you <laughs> no. get some good stuff? No, no, no. We both got some good stuff. He got some really good Sega Mega Drive games, and um, I got some PS One bits. Funny enough which was pretty cool. And then I actually popped into a charity shop near where my dad lives in Derby. He keeps raving on about it. And I got some Wiimotes and Wii Nunchucks for 45p, which just... I think they say 45 pounds. No, 45p. 45p each. 
But when I went up to the till, because they didn't have prices on, and the woman was just like, oh yeah, we sell all game console accessories for 45p each. I was just like, okay, like, thank you. <laughs> like, I'll take them. So yeah, some really good... Uh, now the amount of people that are going to be Googling where that place is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Revealing all my secrets. Um, but no, it was cool. Not quite game shopping in New York and San Francisco and stuff like that, but still still fun. <laughs> Soon I'm going to release some videos of all of that as well yeah, on my channel, good, so yeah. that should be good and you'll be able to see all the, the crazy stores and uh, like drool over it. The, the worst thing was I couldn't fit anything in my bag, so I got the yeah. magnet box, but there's so many... Uh, things over there that I just wanted to take. Left all your clothes in the hotel room. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is nice to have you back, Ravi, um, you know, in person again, as it were. And uh, of course, we, uh, we're straight back into it. We've got an amazing interview that you and I have done, actually, with a legend. This guy's worked for so many massive companies, I guess, this week. Yeah, this is an awesome interview. It's uh, with Ken Allen. So Ken Allen originally started kind of doing that MIDI sound on his 8-bit Atari, and and that led him to working at Sierra. So he did, like, a King's Quest and a Space Quest, absolutely huge series. And then, uh, of course, CD-ROM landed, and he was one of the mm. first people to do audio streaming off CD-ROM, eventually leading on to working for many companies. He went into games production and games design afterwards after learning, and he was in that crazy period of... Uh, fmv videos and we know you've just done a video on some fmv games as well dan and my god that that was a mad period but also one little cool thing that i found out about him was he worked on the miracle keyboard project for the nas do you remember that the miracle keyboard it teach you how to play mm. yeah yeah and it was like a kind of add-on so you'd have the cartridge and then you'd have the big miracle keyboard <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be a really interesting guest this week. He's coming up on the show in around half an hour from now. Ken Allen in just a bit. And of course, the first half of the show, if you're new to it, the way it works is we kind of do a little roundtable roundup of what's been happening in retro gaming and technology over the last seven days. Because, you know, there's new stories all the time. And uh, this one I was quite pleased to see, you know, being our, uh, I, know, I know you're a fan as well, Joe, but I think it's fair to say I'm, I'm our resident Ghostbusters nerd. Although Ravi did visit the firehouse when he was in New York, which I'm very jealous about. <laughs> Even your dog's called Winston, isn't he? <laughs> he is, yeah. As a tribute to Mr. Zedmore, who um, I've got to say, I am quite pleased to see that now, because, I mean, it was always a bit weird back in the day. You know, Winston was obviously the Ghostbuster that came into the story a bit late in the movie, didn't he? Mm. You know, the original three guys at the start, and then they hired him as like a, an extra member of staff. But the thing is, a lot of the marketing material was done when it was just the three original Ghostbusters. So... That meant that often you'd get like posters and you'd get, you know, for example, the game, the Ghostbusters game that came out on the Sega Mega Drive, which was actually, I mean, I was never a big fan of the, the Activision game. I always thought that was a little bit fiddly. Uh, but the game that came out on the, on the Mega Drive was pretty good, actually. Uh, but again, there was only three Ghostbusters in there. Now, they reckon that they got an early script of the movie before it was actually made to work on the game, which is a reason that Winston wasn't in there. But as a kid, it always bugged me, you know, when he was left out. So it's quite nice to see that now someone's actually done a fan hack of the ROM and you can now play as Winston Zedmore, finally, in the Ghostbusters Mega Drive game. Yeah, this is really cool. What I, what I wanted to point out about it as well is it's, it's not just a skin. Like, they've not just mm. put a skin over one of the other characters. So this is actually being made by a couple of guys. Um, so it's Billy Time G... Master Lin Kuei and Dan Danlio Diaz are working on this project who are all um you know hackers who are on Twitter and stuff and they've been tweeting about it and it's been you know getting some good traction on there 
But essentially what they wanted to make clear is they have fully hacked the game and created this pixel art of Winston, which looks really, really good and looks, you know, perfect fitting for the game. Um, But they've got all these own stats in there and stuff as well. So it's like, you know, Peter, he has like normal speed and normal stamina. You know, Ray has, he's like slow speed and high stamina and so on. So they've given Winston like his own stats as well. So it's not just you pick Peter and then when the game starts up, you're playing as Winston. He's going to have no, his own yeah, yeah. character profile. You know, you can select him from the menu and everything. And obviously, it's going to be a ROM hack, so you know you can play it on emulation and stuff, and on an EverDrive or something. You know, they've not. It's not out yet. They're just working on it. But you know, it's it, like you say, it's good to see Winston in the games because of he. He just never got the love, did he? He was never in any of the '80s or '90s games. He's in the. He's in the. Uh, the more recent games, and interestingly, mm. I didn't even know this, but there's a Ghostbusters game coming out this year called Ghostbusters Spirits yes. Unleashed. And that um, looks amazing. Which is, is he in the C64 one at all? I don't know. I don't think I he's guess, in any of I them. guess because that's like really early one, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think he's in any of the... I could be wrong, but yeah, he's... I haven't played it for a long time. Yeah. I've, got, I've got a feeling they're just kind of generic Ghostbusters. I don't even think they've got any names in, <laughs> the, probably... in the 64 version from memory. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in the new game, Ghostbusters Spirits Unleashed, I think he is actually not the main character, but he's the main Ghostbuster in the game. Like, he's in charge and stuff like that, and they're using Ernie Hudson as well. Uh, well, I, th- I think that's because, you know, uh, without getting any spoilers here, you know, they're working on the sequel to Ghostbusters Afterlife, the movie, yes. which apparently Winston's going to be taking that role of, if you watch the ending, right at the end after the credits of Afterlife, you probably yeah. know what's coming next. But, yeah, um, and they yeah. announced the sequel to Afterlife this week as well. So mm. lots, lots of love for Winston at the moment. Um, but yeah, cool little hack for a, a, a really underrated, good Ghostbusters game because there's not that many retro good Ghostbusters games but the Mega Drive Genesis one is good it's the one with the chibi style where they're all little aren't they and yeah. it's it's kind of like they fight like floating plates and stuff in it don't they <laughs> it is a fun one yeah but yeah. it's very cartoony yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is one of the few like you said that's worth a play and um, which is weird because it was such a big franchise back in the 80s and the fact that there wasn't really that many decent games. I mean, I remember getting really excited for Ghostbusters 2, you know, when that game came mm. out and uh, not being able to get past the, there's like a, you know, the bit in the, the start of the movie when you go down the the rope into the slime. Yeah. Couldn't even get past that. So it was, you know, it, it's, it was good to see an actual decent Ghostbusters game. And now it just feels more complete having all the Ghostbusters in there. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, uh, yeah, we'll keep an eye out for that. Like you said, it's going to be a download available to uh, play on your EverDrive or an emulator. And we've all dreamed about having our own time machine, haven't we? Constantly. Imagine that, you know, if, if you had a time machine. Constantly. Not, all, all those prices that you have to pay, you know, to get retro games. Now, imagine taking a trip back to, like, 1989, buying them secondhand for, like, £5. It'd be amazing. I, I, I'm hoping the big reveal's coming that you've made an actual time machine now, Dan, <laughs> but it's specifically aimed at, t- at retro games. Yeah, so I'm actually doing this week's show from the year 1992 um, on my Amiga 600. Uh, Good now, this is actually, man. well, this is a video by a guy called The Science Elf, who's a great YouTube channel, and he's made an internet time machine. Now, we've talked about this before. I mean, there is a service that's been around for a long time called The Wayback Machine, the archive.org host, which is where, I mean, I've got to say, it is probably the most ambitious project it's to do with the internet it's a smart project because the way it works was um due to the popularity of a site it would take a screenshot at a certain period of the site and kind of if you're lucky 
you can go back and look and depending on the popularity of the site you can actually find some so some of my old sites are on there i'm not gonna put the addresses up and stuff same here <laughs> yeah but <laughs> once um, i wanted to vanish forever or archived on that yeah yeah so um it's it's not a complete kind of history of the internet but you can get a lot of stuff working some stuff like videos won't play on some stuff because it depends what they kind of archived but this mm. is a this is a proxy uh, so basically you can change your internet service to kind of emulate the year but the way that this guy's done it is really amazing for a start he's using a an apple e-machine which is the kind of old school uh, you know introduction introductory web computer that came out yeah it was mainly for schools wasn't it a bit like the iMac an all-in-one um crt power pc mac yeah and uh it it kind of had that awful mouse i remember and it was like you know this is your gateway to the internet but what he's done is he's created this proxy to work in like a little black box and it's got a dial on it I, i think this is the coolest bit because uh it reminds me of number one, the black box of the IT crowd, where they say the internet's inside. This is the this. internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't break the internet, Jeff. But also, it kind of is like a time machine because you can choose the date on it, and then you know surf that date with a, a device connected to it with an appropriate browser, and uh, you know the kind of proxy settings done on there. Yes, I mean what he's, he's put a Raspberry Pi inside a um, a little black box with a rotary dial on top, and it's got a display. Mounted on the front. So yeah, what you do is, I mean, it connects via the um, archive.org's proxy, which actually, it kind of fills in a lot of those gaps. You know, you mentioned that they, they take images of websites, and that's all the, the HTML they've downloaded and everything. But often you'll go on certain sites and the images will be missing or there'll be broken links. And apparently the proxy actually smooths that out a bit more. It can take it from, you know, close grabs a bit, oh, so nice. they're a bit more complete. Um, which actually, you know, is, is a really nice improvement. Uh, but yeah, what he's got, so really, you've got your Raspberry Pi, Next to your retro computer, you hook your machine via Ethernet into the Pi, and then using the little rotary dial on top, you select the date that you want to go to, you know, left and right, going forward and back in time, click it down, and then all of a sudden the date on your PC is changed to match whatever's on that Raspberry Pi display. So he does a really good demonstration of that. He sets it to 2001 and goes on to uh, Microsoft's Windows XP website, you know, when it launched, and then he quickly rotates the dial forward to go to, uh, you know, like 2012 when Microsoft like don't use XP anymore, it's discontinued. So that's a really good example of like, how we jump forward through a decade really quickly using this rotary dial on this box. So it's a very slick way of doing it, I think. Yeah, I think it would be a great tool for kids at school, you know, like there's this kind of mm. assumption that the internet's always been there and we know it wasn't. Like imagine, you know, giving this to a kid and going, right, this was the very start, you know, this is the like limited amount of sites that you had. AOL was king and look, Yahoo was huge. You know what I mean? Uh, kind of, yeah, it'd be, it'd be really interesting for kids to see that and to be able to play on that and go around. I think these should be issued to every single school in the country. You know what? It's interesting because I think there probably is somewhat of a kind of misunderstanding. I mean, you know, or, or maybe a lack of education about that era because I was listening, you know, completely off topic to, um, Another podcast the other day, it's like a, a crime podcast hosted by these uh, these two ladies who are really good. Um, I've got a feeling they're in like the mid-20s, and they were talking about the fact that um, one of these criminals they were talking about set up a website in 1997, and they're both talking about, could you even set websites up in 1997? Was that even a thing? And I was like, you know, made me feel really old to start with, but I thought, if you hadn't been taught about that before you were born, I guess maybe you wouldn't know. Yeah, and also like, 
the internet was a much smaller place because less people mm. were connected. So, for example, you know, the reason we have screenshots of our site is because they might have been like semi-popular because there was less people there, you know. Yeah. So, uh, where, whereas nowadays stuff can just get like pushed away or, you know, there's corners of the internet that people haven't been on for years and stuff. So, yeah, I think this is really interesting and uh, I, I kind of love the idea of having some physicality with it. Like, it's nice to have a proxy, but having a dial that you spin and you're going, oh, I'm going into this day. Yeah, that's well cool. And beyond even the novelty of it, I mean, you know, it's cool having like Apple.com on your year 2000 PC Mac. But I think also there are certain times when, you know, when we're researching guests, you know, for this show, sometimes you'll, you'll find a link on a forum to an interview they did in like 1995 that's not there anymore, but why Bat Machine has captured it. Yeah, so or even, even making YouTube videos, you know, trying to find yeah. out about an old company or information that's not available in other places. Um, yeah. it's, it's really or essential. Files. I do that anyway, you know, when I'm looking for stuff. Yeah. Even like drivers and stuff. I mean, I did a video about, um, you know, full motion video that you mentioned before that's on my YouTube channel now. Trying to find the drivers for that graphics card was quite hard, but I found an archive version of that company's website. And luckily the file's still downloaded from the archive version. So it can be, you know, there are actual valid uses for why you might want to visit an earlier version of a website. So I think, you know, not only is having that proxy very cool, but yeah, I just I just want one of these on my desk. I kind of want <laughs> one as well. Has he made it like available as a, as a file or, or kind of... I guess it's just it's just a pie, isn't it? And he shows yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of made it all himself. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a link to the proxy on GitHub in his um, in this in his description. He kind of talks you through how he's made it. It doesn't look overly complicated if you're uh, kind of a bit up on electronics. So um, I'll put the whole video in the show notes at theretrohour.com if you want to build your own internet time machine. Very very cool. Now we're all big fans of Lego. I mean, God, Ravi, you actually you built a Lego laptop recently. I'm still that, um, building it's, it. Pretty much, it's very <laughs> expensive. Say, nearly done, it? <laughs> well, you've been building a um, a laptop Amiga 600. We did talk last year that there is um, these uh, uh, Lego versions of the Nintendo Entertainment System, but now it looks like there is going to be a, another retro console um, that's going to cost you $200 for a bricked console. I love that headline on Eurogamer. That's going to be launching this summer. Yeah, so Lego have announced an official announcement as well. They've made it clear it's official. The Atari 2600 is going to be coming this August. Like you say, at $200 or £169.99. Um, and, and this is really interesting because it, it's clear that Lego are doing a lot with gaming, obviously in terms of they've got the Lego games, but in terms of gaming Lego sets, because obviously there's the Sonic set we spoke about, the Mario set we spoke about. Um, there's Minecraft sets now as well. And then obviously, as you mentioned, famously, the Nintendo, which actually came with a TV as well, that scrolled yeah. with Mario. Like, I forgot had, about it that. had a cartridge and everything. So um, not too sure they haven't announced if they're doing the same with the, the 2600, but it is going to be based on the, the, the wood grain, you know, the wooden trim 1977 2600, which is really cool. Um, but interestingly, apparently it comes as part of the Atari's 50th anniversary. And, uh, is Atari 50, is the 2650? Oh, is it Atari? Got you. I'm, I'm, I was, Atari themselves. Atari the themselves. Yeah. I was coming, yeah. I was like, well, the 2600 came out in 1977, like the five years early. But yeah, I get it. Cause you know, when I think Atari, I just think of the 2600. Like <laughs> when you say, let's go play Sega, I always think of the Mega Drive. But yeah, I'm, I'm hoping um, it's as successful as the, the NES one they did. You know, I'm sure there is a huge market for it, but they haven't revealed the look of it yet. 
but I'm sure it's going to be interesting, you know, with the black and the wood paneling and everything, and you know, the classic stick control with the red button and everything like that. I'm sure they'll 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 absolutely kill it and it'll look amazing. Do you think they're going to do wood grain Lego then? Well, they're going to have to because it's based on the wood grain original. <laughs> so they're going to have to. I would love it if they did a TV. The TV they did is all wood grain as well, like kind of yeah. to fit with the period. If they do a TV with it, because of with the NES one, I believe it was like a black CRT style TV you know, from the 80s. So it'd be really cool if they do a 70s style TV with like the bunny ears on the top as well. Oh, that'd be amazing. So that's the thing. I mean, I didn't realise that Atari was 50 this year, but I've, yeah, I looked it up. It was introduced. Uh, the company was founded June 27th, 1972. So oh, yeah, wow. it will be the 50th anniversary next month. Oh, wow. Which is the first I've read about it. It's, this, it, um, introduction. it's interesting because before, like you said, they've done Sega and they've done Nintendo and stuff. And that's like a later generation. They've actually gone back. And yeah. it, it, they must be thinking we've we've got an older group of uh, Lego users at the moment that we want to kind of hit, like with the 2600 and getting into that kind of vintage computing era. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting to see them doing this one. And uh, of course, that's probably the most popular, uh, well-known Atari console, isn't it? So uh, yeah, it, I wonder if we'll see any. <laughs> Where's other, my Lego Jaguar? <laughs> you know, maybe maybe we'll see. Yeah, maybe we'll see like a, a Sinclair Spectrum out of Lego. Yeah. That would look that would look good, wouldn't it? Or that would be. Or cool. yeah, another another system maybe that was kind of popular if they're going into the eight bits. I I, uh, I wonder if um, you could get this Lego set and then hollow it out and put like a VCS in it or something. <laughs> you know, someone's going to do yeah. that. <laughs> oh, for sure, <laughs> guaranteed. So Lego, I mean, I I enjoy, I was going to say I enjoy building things in Lego. I'm not very good at it, though. And, you know, we've talked before about the fact that I, I'm actually still building my Back to the Future DeLorean that I've had. Probably <laughs> that's his 10-year anniversary now that I've had that. I uh, still haven't finished building it yet, so um, that could be on the list. Uh, well, I'm, I'm waiting for one hinge. One hinge for my laptop. Yeah, but you, you, you've built your laptop out of retro Lego as well, though. That's the issue you've got. Yeah, yeah, that's so you're looking rare, for, like, these little retro pieces, white hinges, yeah. aren't you? So, but that's the thing, I mean, yeah, I did wonder when I saw that, Ravi, you mentioned then, because I thought the demographic, it's obviously going to be older, isn't it? I mean, if it's yeah. you know, 50 years old, you imagine, you know, if you want to put like an average age on what um, Nintendo 2600 players are, you'd say we're in the 50s or 60s probably. But I think Lego, it's a kind of thing that just transa- transcends age groups, doesn't it? Everyone loves Lego. Yeah, and you could sit down with your kid and you can be like, right, this yeah. is the one that I had and let's let's build it together or build it as a family, you know. it's 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 a nice activity and... To be honest, I think in a world where we've got so many screens and computers, Lego's really rose in popularity because you can kind of turn off and stuff like oh, Lego yeah. and board games are, are really therapeutic. Yeah, so hopefully it's um, a sign of more video game themed Lego projects on the way. So we'll keep an eye out for that one due out this summer. Now, speaking of physicality, I mean, if we're talking about, you know, games consoles that got us up off the couch and moving around, of course, the Nintendo Wii was probably the most famous example of that. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's not the biggest selling console ever, but I think it's the second biggest, isn't it, after the PlayStation 2. Mm. Um, and this is an interesting article on Nintendo Life. I mean, if you had to put one thing down to, you know, the Wii success, I would say it was probably Wii Sports, wasn't it? The fact that everyone just used to play that, you know, bowling and stuff like that. It was always a game. I mean, I know people that didn't actually buy any other games for their Wii. Oh, yeah. Apart from Wii Sports. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. You you think of Wii, the Wii, and I instantly think of Wii Sports. And this, this next news piece is really interesting as well, you know, and I want people to bear in mind that I believe Wii Sports is the biggest selling game of all time because it was the pack-in with the Wii. 
you know, it's... 82.9 yeah, million 82, copies. Yeah, you beat me to it. 82.9 million against 101 systems sold, 101 mm. million systems sold because of, there was other variants later on where you could get it with Double Dash, Mario, uh, not Mario Double Dash, with um, Mario Kart Wii and stuff, wasn't there? Um, so not every Wii, there's about 20 million there that didn't come with it. But this is a really interesting story, isn't it? So this comes from the, the was he the director of Nintendo of America, was he? It's Reggie Fillamay. Yeah, Reggie Fillamay was that yeah, was yeah. that his brother, the president of of president, Nintendo, yeah. wasn't he? For in the, throughout the two thousands, well, he's currently is he recently released a book or he's writing a book at the moment, all about his time with Nintendo, and essentially he's he's outlined in there that it was he had to really push for Wii Sports to be the packing game, um, and at the time the you know the president of of Nintendo, which was uh, Sataru Awata at the time said essentially, uh, and I quote, that Nintendo don't give away products for free. Like, mm. they didn't want it to have a pack-in. Um, and the Nintendo 64 famously didn't have a pack-in game, which I think a lot of people moaned about, and I've seen on a lot of retrospective videos and stuff people moaned about. And it's interesting... To a, s- a lot of consoles didn't at launch, though, did no, they? No, they didn't. And then it was quite common but later that, on. Then yeah. they came out with packs like, later yeah. on. So, yeah, so yeah, had, yeah, like, yeah, the yeah. All-Stars pack for the... Um, for the Super uh, Nintendo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um really interesting you know that they were like nintendo don't give away their products for free uh which i thought was quite funny because they don't um for the most part but you know what it's interesting to see if there's a parallel universe where the wii didn't come with wii sports and we got a completely different experience of the wii um but miyamoto was apparently in the meeting as well where you know reggie was kind of fighting for it and he suggested that why don't we pack wii play in now, I don't know about you guys, but I've never played Wii Play. No, I, I think it's just, it wasn't it just like a how to use the Wiimotes kind of demo disc kind of thing? I I am I I think it's a full game and it's, it's right. kind of got like more kind of like board gamey thing, kind of things in it. It's got like table tennis and um, it's got like, I wouldn't say duck hunt, but like a thing where you shoot ducks out of the sky and there's like a, a snooker mm. pool game on it. So famously, nowhere near as famous as, as uh, you know, Wii Sports, but essentially... Reggie Filamo turned around and said, I don't think that game's as polished as Wii Sports. And he really, really pushed for it. So I, th- I think Wii Sports opened up the whole world of using the me and yeah. kind of, you know, customizing it and actually caring about your character and caring about the points and stuff like that. Whereas without that, maybe that, you know, whole me thing would have just been like, right, I'm going to go with the default skin, just do mm-hmm. it and not really care. It, it really introduced you to the whole world of it. And, especially, you know, the controller and kind of being able to use yeah. it. But also yeah. it was universal age-wise. Anyone could play yeah. it, you know. Yeah, yeah, everybody, you know, my parents aren't gamers at all. They're not into gaming whatsoever, but my dad would always have, like, fun on Wii Sports. You know, he always, you know, he'd love, like, I battered you at boxing. You know, he'd get really competitive yeah. about it. And I think that's really interesting what you said about the the avatars with the Miis there because of, that did kind of shape gaming for a while because like Xbox then ripped it off and PlayStation kind of had yeah, their own version yeah. of it as well. Like that all came a little bit later. Well, it's PlayStation home. I remember. Yeah, yeah, point, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think definitely onto something there, but it's interesting to think that it, you know, we sports might not have been what it became, you know, as we know today and famously people still play it to this day and during COVID and lockdown, you know, the price of Wii Sports shot through the roof because everybody was pulling their Wiis out of the attic and wanting to play Wii Sports, but they couldn't find it because it just came with the little cardboard sleeve. 
Um, that's so, one thing I thought would never be like up in price. Wii Sports, because Wii Sports, it was absolutely <laughs> everywhere. And, you yeah. know, and suddenly it was like, what? Wii controllers are getting expensive. What? Yeah, we, and we, Wii Fit boards. You couldn't get them anywhere. Oh god, in yeah. summer twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah, you could build a house out of Wii Fit boards. Now. <laughs> There's that many of them. But yeah, Wii Sports. Um, still think it goes for about 20 30 pounds now in the uk because people want it you know even though there's there's 82.9 million copies of it floating yeah, around mad you just think though because yeah you're right i mean my my in-laws have got a wii and you know they're not really gamers you know even my, my wife's grandparents have got a nintendo wii um and i just think if wii sports wasn't bundled in there it wouldn't have sold anywhere near as many units i mean nintendo fans i think would have still bought it you know it might have been a bit more successful than the wii u but i think it was just the fact that it was seen as you know not so much even a video games console for a lot of people it was like a like a party box i know people that would get it out with their karaoke machine and that kind of thing at a house party it kind of felt like more of a a party accessory than a hardcore gaming console for a lot of people yeah, it was fun, especially with stuff like uh, the rock band and all of that kind of stuff mm. that came on later. But yeah, it was it was like that collaboratively fun kind of pass the controller around and everyone get involved. And Wii Sports really, really introduced that, you know. And also it was it was that kind of thing of each taking in an individual turn on the Wiimote rather than having your own Wiimotes and stuff. Um, just mm. like... It was such a good introduction. Yeah, very interesting that they uh, kind of didn't go with it. And thank God they did. <laughs> yeah. Well, while we're talking about the Wii, now might be a good time just to mention our uh, second podcast that we do, the Retro Hour After Hours, because we talk way more about the Wii on the latest episode of that show. Yeah, we did. It was it was meant to be a 2005 episode um, because we do the retro years. Like every other episode, don't we? We kind of like pick a mm. year. And we kind of, we were running through like the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and then we kind of went off on a, let's do, you know, we kind of, I think it was 1993 we did a couple of months ago. And then we did 2005 for this month. Um, and we kind of started talking about the Xbox 360 and we, the Wii and the PS3 came out in 2006, didn't they? They were announced. They were right, announced right. in 2005. So we did do, a, we did chat a lot about kind of, is it the 7th gen? The Wii and the Xbox 360. Oh, I can never remember. I can, I can never remember if it's six or seven. <laughs> I'm lost it is. On the but we gems. kind of ended up talking about that gen more than we did just 2005 as a also whole. Also, stuff like the um, the iPods coming out and stuff yeah. like uh, technology, iPod like Nano. Bluetooth, kind of became a, yeah, yeah. a bit what of a standard did we then. Have that yeah. Year? yeah, so it was a really fun one actually. If you want to kind of get our uh, our thoughts on that generation, whichever one it was, I think it might be the seventh, um, and my uh, experience of. Investing heavily into HD DVD. We also talk, I was listening to that episode that we did. We also talk about what we're going to do with our gaming collections after we die, which uh, it wasn't morbid. <laughs> it was quite an interesting conversation, really, wasn't it? Because we've all got plans for that. So um, if you want to check out that, the Retro Hour After Hours podcast, we do it every month for our gold member patrons or above. But really, I mean, the reason we've got a patron is because it is the lifeblood of this podcast. It's a reason that we can keep bringing out an episode every single Friday for you. So if you uh, want to give us a little tip, throw a few quid into the hat, you know, it all helps out. Uh, you get a few perks as well. Not only do you get the uh, the second podcast, you also get invited to the patrons hangouts are always one of the highlights of the month oh yeah that was one of the highlights for me in america being able to kind of run around with a laptop and with a phone and and show you guys vcf and like have i had people going oh are you just showing your friend and i was like no there's like 30 people on this chat and they're like oh wow you know uh, they ran off (laughs) yeah yeah it's 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 really exciting yeah I, i love having the patrons chat and uh 
you know, you can just come show your setups, but you can also talk about um, any subject pretty much. And we'll we'll get into it as long as it's kind of technology related. And uh, we also talk about videos and movies and uh, just kind of like that old nostalgia it, and culture it, it's really it, good fun it, yeah it's, it, culture is the, the best word there you know and we and like you say we end up just talking about like-minded subjects you know mm. we often end up on mobile phones horror films you know vhs and stuff like that and i i really look forward to it mini disc i always crack open a cider and you know sit back and listen to everybody's stories but like you say rather we ended up talking all about vcf and then we kind of t- ended up talking about the the mad game collection that i've recently <laughs> purchased that i was showing off so um you know usually it's we kind of you know gawking at everybody else's amazing collections but uh for once i was showing people what i bought yeah recently, and what, what, didn't we have a, a a listener um with a power glove drinking a beer now that was we the did we did yeah, so it was really cool yeah <laughs> So if you'd like to join us for this month's Patrons Hangout, we would love to see you there. We're always very welcoming of new members. And you also get the regular podcast early most weeks, ad free with extra content just for our patrons. But really the reason you're doing it is just to make sure this show can come out every single Friday and all our costs are covered. And of course, for backing us on Patreon, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming. That is... Hall of Fame. The Retro Hour Hall of Fame. I know people just uh, sing along to that Ravi now that... <laughs> It's like a bad TV show. <laughs> <laughs> we only have one new patron this week, but let's give him a massive thank you to the wonderful William Becker for supporting us on Patreon. We hugely appreciate that. And if you'd like to join him and all our other patrons, all the details are at theretrohour.com. Now, we have got a few more news stories to get into uh, before our chat to Ken Allen, including uh, this is quite an interesting prototype find. It feels like recently there's been so many game prototypes for like quite obscure games that have been uh, found out there in the wild. This one is for the game Gex. Now, we've talked about Gex before. One of the, um, pioneer, the mascots isn't of the... Gex? Yeah, that, that 90s Tewed era, I believe it was called. Yeah, we, we actually mentioned him a couple of weeks ago because like, the licensing on Gex had recently been um, renewed by, like I think it's Square mm. Enix or somebody like that have him at the moment. Like Somebody really random has him. And... Um, I, I saw this article and it was like, you know, next game, Gex game to be released in 2022. And I was like, oh, wow, like it's coming out. There's a Gex game's been announced, but it's not quite the case. Um, it is actually the guys over at Hidden Palace who just seem to be getting a hold of everything at the moment. How do they do it? I don't know how to do it. And they don't, they don't always explain how to do it. And they haven't explained where they got this one from. Um, you know, it's just fair enough. Like sometimes people, maybe people sell it to them or donate it to them, you know, and they don't want to be named or anything like that. Um, but this is actually a build of a Gex game that never came out from 2001, dated January 25th, 2001, um, which was two years after the release of Gex Free Deep Cover, um, which came out on the PlayStation, the Game Boy Color, and the N64. And this is a PS1 slash N64 version of Gex Jr., where you... Um, <laughs> he's got a cap on. He's got a cap. He's a little boy, Gex. Um, you know, the article says that it looks as though you're Gex's son. I wouldn't be surprised if it's just meant to be a younger version of Gex, even though he's called Gex Jr. Um, but he's got a backwards red cap on, so still still tubular. Even he's, though not, he's not as lanky as Gex, is he? He's, no, he's a little, he's a bit little boy, stubby version of Gex, isn't he? Um, and he's got a, a typical red and white stripy t-shirt in the vein of Dennis the Menace, it reminds me of. But it's just one playable level at the moment where you're just there's no enemies or anything like that. You're just running around collecting fizzy pop. 
cans of fizzy pop as the uh, collector. That's why he's so hyper. Yeah, you know, it, it feels very tubular, very 90s. Um, so not too sure what happened there. Maybe just Gex wasn't popular enough and the world didn't need a fourth Gex game, you know, and the studio decided to shut it down. But yeah, the article says like, you know, it really rips into Gex. It literally says like the opening line is Gex was a bad video game released in 1995. I wouldn't say it was a, they were bad games. I would say they were very mediocre games, personally. Very of the time, I think, yeah. weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've not played the, the follow-up games. I've only played the, the original on the 3DO. Mm. But I mean, you know, there wasn't a wealth of great games on the 3DO anyway. So Gex is generally one of my go-to titles if I've got the 3DO set up. This, yeah, this looks um, quite interesting, this game, though. Um, like, the, the level, the demo, at least, is in a kind of mad... TV slash cinema world with uh, CRTs everywhere and big remotes. Yeah, it looks like <laughs> a, it reminds me of like a game show studio. Yeah, that's yeah. what it looks like to me with all with all CRTs everywhere, like you say. But yeah, it's got a bit of a cinema vibe as well because there's like a sweet popcorn kiosk in it as well. Yeah, and the bad cinema carpet as well that you yeah. used to get. Yeah, so Gex always was about that though for some reason. They're always very TV themed. Yeah, because of I had Gex 3D and I'm sure I had it for the N64. I've not played it in like 20 years, if that. And um, you get sucked into game, into TV in that. So I think it, it's mm. probably based all around that uh, uh, kind of typical kind of Gex game. And, and, you know, sometimes I'm like, this looks really good. We should have had this, but not too sure if the world needed a fourth Gex game. In 2001. I think in, in in terms of the gameplay of it, and I mean, I'll, I'll put the video in our show notes. At first, when when you linked this up, I thought, oh, it was going to be like, you know, terrible, like Bubsy 3D yeah. or something. That's oh, no, it looks an awful. It looks actually pretty, you know, in terms of the gameplay mechanics and the camera, you know, the zooming. I mean, it's a 3D mm. uh, version of Gex. And I guess, you know, I've never played Gex 3D, but maybe they, they obviously had a go at doing a 3D version of the game and maybe, you know, perfected some of the gameplay elements by doing that. So they kind of maybe had it nailed by... 2001 but i actually think it looks you know again it not a game that's gonna you know change the world but something that might have been a fun little hour or two to play on your playstation i think and yeah that, absolutely and that kind of junior thing like they were all doing back then weren't they like everybody had a kind of junior character or like a baby version that was a, yeah a huge trend yeah there, there was that trend as well in the late 90s but you know, maybe they, they kind of put a pin on it because, you know, you got to think 2001, 2002, you get starting to get games like GTA 3. Yeah. And, you know, really could Gex, you know, this game does look very 1996, I must say, you know, looking at it. And, and he looks cute. I feel like I'm bashing on it. Like, and I feel really bad because he does look really cute in his little backwards cap and he's running around collecting the cans of pop. But yeah, over on Hidden Palace, if you want to check it out. And we're still waiting for that Gex revival as soon as yep. we get some news. I know uh, Joe's ch- checking his phone every 20 minutes. <laughs> to Googling Gex, where is he? That's how I found this. <laughs> now we're going to be chatting to our special guest, Ken Allen, on the podcast in just a minute. Before we do, let's take a quick second to give a massive thank you to our longest running sponsor on this podcast. And we love Bitmap Books so much, don't we? I mean, God, how, how much have they supported our show over the last, what, three or four years now? Bitmap Books is a huge part of the retro hour and we really really appreciate them um and they've done a new book called go straight the ultimate guide to side scrolling beat-em-ups which i absolutely love because when it comes to retro gaming side scrolling beat-em-ups are probably like my favorite like genre you know i absolutely adore them and this is an absolutely incredible book you know they've obviously got like every single beat-em-up game pretty much in there 
spanning from where it kind of started in 1984 with Kung Fu all the way up to modern day with Streets of Rage 4. Um, and it covers like over hundreds of games in there, over over 450 pages worth of content. With it's a beast of a book. I've got it here. Beast of a book. Breaking my arm. Yeah, breaking your arm, slamming it on the table like you usually do. <laughs> it's um, good to see uh, Castle Crashers in there as well. That was Yeah, Castle Crashers. Really yeah, that was a really good game. That um, that came off the back of news, Newgrounds and stuff, didn't it? But, um, you know, and as always, they have the amazing pixel art printed in there as well. And, you know, a feature I love in it as well. They don't do it for every single game, but like the likes of Golden Axe, where they have like the really nice and altered beast, like the really nice detailed, detailed picture, pixel perfect pictures of like, you know, the, the characters and the enemies and everything that are in those games. It's like a childhood dream come true, this book is. Mm. Like for me, I absolutely love it. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, it's 450 pages. I'm looking through as well. The amount of games in here that, you know, I'm just going through it and I'm like, oh my God, I remember that. Oh my God, I remember that. Oh my God. And there's like just facts and stuff that you didn't know about the games around this gorgeous artwork too. And the thing about a Bitmap Books book is, you know when you see one of their books, don't you? Because they're just the highest quality retro gaming books I've ever seen. You've got this gorgeous hardback, you know, and hear that. Big books as well look really nice on your shelf. The spot varnish cover, edge-to-edge, high-quality lithographic print, sewn binding. I mean, these things look incredible on your shelf, on your coffee table. Whenever friends come around as well, they're all something that people pick up mm. if you've got one on your coffee table, aren't they? Yeah, and, just and like, really uh, also I like that they include a free PDF as well, so you can yeah. like read it on any device or anything if you can't uh, carry the book with you. Yeah, so if you want to check this out, if you're a fan of beat-em-up games, it is a must-read. Go straight, the ultimate guide to side-scrolling beat-em-ups, available now. You can check that out. And the rest of their retro gaming books as well, like we said, they're big supporters of our show. So please go and check them out. Show them a bit of love back. Bitmapbooks.com. All right, then, time to get some inside stories from legendary companies like Sierra, Interplay, Midway, and lots more with this week's guest. Ken Allen is next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for this week's very special guest. Now, I can't wait to get some stories about legendary companies, including Sierra that we always love talking about, companies like Interplay, Midway you've worked for as well. And uh, we're just going to get some stories about this uh, classic age of video games going from the early days through the FMV era that I find really interesting too. Let's welcome on our very special guest, Ken Allen. How are you doing, Ken? I'm doing great. It's good to be here. Really appreciate you taking the time to uh, do a bit of reminiscing with us today. Um, and it's always nice to kind of, you know, kind of go back to day one with our guests and kind of, you know, find out what initially got them into video games and computers. And obviously, um, you know, you having an audio background. I mean, do you remember when you first got into electronic music then? When was the first time you kind of discovered it? Oh, I, I remember there was a kit from Radio Shack that let me put together my own tone generator that had buttons for each key. And... uh uh, that was a lot of fun. When I first listened to the album Switched on Bach, I thought, I've got to have something like that. So right from the beginning of the electronic music age, I felt like I had to be part of it. Was this one of those kind of DIY sold to yourself? Yeah, that's uh, right. Uh, yeah, it came with a little plastic box that had a bunch of holes that looked like a do-it-yourself circuit board. You put in the resistors and capacitors and the buttons and everything else in the speaker and the, and where you plug in the, the battery. Uh, and, and it made it all very, very nice and neat. And you soldered it at the end, like you just said. Of course, if you're careless with soldering like I was, you melted the plastic sometimes. But uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun to learn how to solder and learn about electronics to make that little kit. 
Well, obviously, I mean, as we got into the 70s, kind of the microcomputer revolution, you know, came along. I mean, do you remember when you first discovered computers and when did you get your first machine? What, what was it? I had a friend whose high school had uh, a computer lab and they had access to CompuServe. And I got to visit one time and I spent probably six or seven hours playing around with CompuServe. And that was my very first computer that I, that I used. Uh, the first one I ever owned was the Texas Instruments TI-994A, which was, uh, it was supposed to be ahead of the, all the others. It had eight bits, it had 16 bits instead of eight bits. But from what I learned later on, the architecture of the, of the computer was only really an eight bit architecture. So the 16 bit chip was a bit of a, bit of a smoke screen. But I loved having that computer. It taught me how to, I learned, I taught myself how to program in basic, extended basic. Uh, fourth was available on the TI and, uh, and, you know, some pretty good, decent games. Wasn't there a, a like a speech synthesizer module as well? Yes, that, uh, there was, uh, <laughs> it had an expansion ba- box, which looks a lot like uh, the, the, the PCs of the same era. We could have a floppy drive in there. Like you said, there was a speech synthesizer. There was a, there was a, what they called a synthesizer that you could plug into the expansion box, but it really, really wasn't true synthesis. So did you have a history in music? Like I heard you were um, into like an orchestra and uh, orchestra Oh, well, and um, sound. my family is kind of a musical family, just as a hobby, nothing professional. My my grandfather was in a was in a, a band that toured around a different you know different venues like bars and and uh, Lions Club meetings and that kind of thing. Uh, everybody in, in my mother's family had an instrument. My mom learned how to play the clarinet. I had an uncle that played the trombone, et cetera, et cetera. So we kind of had music. Um, being a musician as part of our family heritage, um, I became interested in playing. And the sixth grader, sixth grade teacher told me I should learn how to play the French horn because it was the best of all the horns. And of course, I wanted to play the trumpet because those were the ones that were in the spotlight. But we were out of trumpets. So I learned how to play the French horn at the age of 11. I played it all the way through college. Got pretty good at it. I uh, I tried to audition for the uh, United States Army Band. And because I'd never had to audition before, I choked and uh, didn't get uh, accepted. And probably a good thing. I mean, obviously, we're going to be talking about Sierra Entertainment. I mean, do you remember the first time that you saw King's Quest and what your reaction was to that game? Oh, I do. I do indeed, like it was yesterday. My best friend from college, uh, his father worked for uh, IBM, and I was visiting their house, and he had the new PC Junior. I think it was, it might have been the PC Mm -hmm. Junior, and uh, that's when King's Quest was released on a cartridge. He said, hey, Ken, come over here and look at this, look what I'm playing, And, and he was moving the character around and typing in commands, and I thought, oh, I must get involved someday. And this was long before I even knew a company like Sierra existed, but I was familiar with King's Quest from its earliest moments. And then uh, later on, uh, after I had um, tried my hand at being a music teacher, not doing too good, you know, I was quite young and didn't know how to do uh, what they call classroom management. Uh, I I kind of marked time for a little while and took a job at the post office, kind of figuring out what to do next. So it was a decent place to to uh, spend some time to figure out the next steps in my career. And during that period, someone brought to my attention uh, an ad in the Fresno Bee. Uh, Fresno is a, is a farm town in the middle of California, and their big export is grapes. That's, that's what they're really known for. And they're very close to Yosemite National Park. They're probably 
50 or 60 miles away, not, not too far away, um, which is a, which is one of the best national parks in the U S but uh, they showed me this ad that said needed musicians for games or something very simple like that. And I thought, all right, that's probably not a real job listing. It's probably a way to sell you lessons or something, but Hey, you know what? I I'm game. I'm ready to look for something to do with my music career and my interest in, in computers. So I put a tape together. I wrote a piece just for uh, the Sierra submission and uh, got a resume, sent it up there. And I thought, okay, well, if something happens, something happens. And then I think about two weeks later, I got a call from somebody at Sierra saying, hey, we got your resume and uh, we like what we heard and like to bring you up for an interview. And I thought, well, I didn't expect that. But then as I, as I finished taking the call, I thought, okay, if it's a real job, it's probably contract and it's probably three hours a week. So again, skeptical that this could be something real. So I drove up to Sierra from where I lived and uh, interviewed. And I thought, wow, this is a real deal. This is a full, full-time 40-hour gig and uh, a week, 40 hours a week gig. And so I thought, let's see where this goes. So I interviewed with the music staff. It was Mark Siebert and a gentleman named... Um, Stuart Goldstein, uh, who was the audio programming. He wrote a lot of the drivers and a lot of the tools that the music department would use. The person who was kind of screening me the whole time was Rick Cavan. He was uh, Ken Williams' kind of operations guy. He kind of ran the show and, and kept the house in order. So I, I think all in all, I, I met with about four or five people, and they gave me an IQ test. <laughs> oh, wow. And uh <laughs> <laughs> and I asked, uh, Tammy was her name. She was in, um, in HR. I said, so why, uh, what's up? I'm a musician. Uh, and she says, they just want to see if the, if you're super smart so that they can take advantage of all that. And I said, well, okay. And I don't consider myself a very good test taker. If I run up against a question that I have to puzzle through, I want to focus on that. I don't want to go through and answer all the rest of the questions like good test taking lessons tell you to do. I was stuck on this one question and trying to work it out and trying to show my math and everything. And so I didn't finish the test. I think I finished about a third of it, gave it to Tammy. And I said, yeah, I kind of got stuck on this question. And she said, don't worry about it. You know, that's just, that's just to see if, uh, if, you know, you're somebody that they want to use in other places. So I thought, well, I'll never get the job now because I, I failed the IQ test. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> about, oh, I want to say about a week later, I got a call saying, hey, uh, we'd like to make you an offer. And and we negotiated um, a starting salary. It was hourly at the time. And uh, it was Rick Kevin. We, we talked about salary and I was, I mean, I was already working at the post office. I had a pretty good salary there. And I thought, well, I'll take like 15% less what I'm currently making at Sierra. I'll take that. And then after 90 days, if they like me, let's, you know, let's boost me back up to what I was making beforehand. And that was kind of like a gentleman's agreement. <laughs> so after I started, I was hourly, but I was also working overtime. And so they converted me to salary so they wouldn't have to pay me overtime. They gave me a little bit of a bump, but, but never, we never came to agreement after the 90 days, but I stayed in spite of that because it was such a fun place to work. Well, um, you know, when you did that job application, I found online, like there's a copy of the kind of song that you did uh, for the application. I was amazed at the setup as well. So it was on a Atari 8-bit and you were using mm -hmm. loads of different sound modules, samplers and like homemade speakers from a high-end uh, car stereo. <laughs> could, you, could you tell us about the kind of home setup that you used to make that uh, oh, initial wow. tune? Oh, wow. 
Yes, I was using the Atari 800, and there was a MIDI program. Gosh, I'll, I'll think of it. Um, MIDI Mate, it was called? MIDI Mate, yes, that's what it MIDI was. MIDI Mate. It and it had a, a decent yeah. um, MIDI recording program. I couldn't edit it uh, like I, like you could with like Foriatra on the PC, but I could kind of capture, and if I didn't like it, I could erase that track and do it again. So it allowed for unlimited uh, chances to capture a good performance. So that was the the computer that I used to rec- to capture the MIDI data. Equipment that I had at home, I had a Matrix 6R, uh, like a, a taller version of the Matrix 1000 module. I had uh, the module version of the DX7. It was called the TX7. Um, I had a couple of... A little uh, four-track I've, I've read as well, a little cassette recorder. That well, yeah, that's that's where we're going background. next. So I, um, the other pieces of equipment, I had like a piano module. I had uh, I had a sampler from Sony, I think it was, and the Korg, uh, the Korg keyboard had really great uh, sound bank on it as well. So, uh, oh, I also had the Yamaha FBO1, which was the predecessor to uh, one of the sound cards made by IBM. But um, so... Did the uh, the song? I created the song in, in a couple days, and then I recorded it to that four track uh, cassette tape, uh, tape player that you mentioned, and uh, it came out okay. Sent it up there with the other stuff I'd worked on. A lot of fun to create that. I, I thought if they're going to want to know if I can create on demand, and uh, that was my way of showing them that I could do that. Well, when you started there, then what were you initially working on, and what kind of brief did they give you? Did they have like a lot of control over the music, or were you kind of left to? work on it yourself and come up with the ideas? Oh, a little of both, I think. So um, after I got to learn the tools after about a week, um, Roberta's uh, Colonel's Bequest game was just starting up. And um, I worked very closely with the two lead programmers on that project. Both of their names began with Chris. So (laughs) uh, it was easy to chat with them. But we would go through the scenes and say, hey, we need a scene for this. We need a piece of music for that. And it needs to be kind of this psychological feeling. And I thought, okay, well, let's do that. And create a few pieces and they would put them in the game and go, yeah, that works. So um, the only interaction I had with Roberta on that game was when I was choosing the style. I, uh, I initially didn't know that it was set in the 20s. I just heard it was a woman who was a detective. So I wrote a piece that was a film noir kind of a jazz walking bass kind of pieces, piece of music. And uh, we played it for Roberta and kind of, she kind of wrinkled her nose and she said, I don't think I like that. You know, this is set in the twenties, right? And I said, oh no, I didn't know that. <laughs> so I, I thought, all right, I'm working on my first game. I'm probably going to get fired if I don't get this right. <laughs> so I, uh, at with permission from the company, I spent two days at the library in Fresno's uh, Fresno State University. They have a music library there. And I looked up everything that I could find in two days on music from the 20s. And I decided I was going to try to emulate that style. And two days of education gave me the ability to kind of uh, match the style uh, from that era. And that really came in handy later because when they wanted, when the other games wanted something like John Williams big, or they wanted something like... Um, they wanted a song like The Police, or they wanted a song that would fit with a, a sitcom or something. I, I had learned how to emulate all these different styles. So anyway, getting back to uh, when the games needed 
a certain kind of music. It all depended. It usually was just like, hey, here's the scene and here's the feeling we're trying to get. And I said, okay, I'll write a piece. And they were happy with it and we moved on. That was pretty much the way things worked. I worked with the people who were actually in the in the trenches with the team making making the games. Well, when CD-ROM arrived, obviously the big change was in audio. And I know you were the first to stream audio at 44.1 kilohertz stereo CD tracks. I mean, was that a massive change, you know, from what you were doing previously? And was it tough to kind of make a player when a lot of other people in the industry hadn't figured out how to work this into games at that stage? We had some very bright people at, at Sierra who, were, who had created this wonderful game engine, for lack of a better term, a, a game development framework. And they were on the cutting edge. Uh, so when CD-ROM came to the consumers, uh, consumer market, Sierra bought one of the first, if not the first, CD burner from Sony. And uh, the engineers were on analyzing its capabilities from the spec sheet and testing things. And that's when my manager, Mark Siebert, said, hey, uh, we're going to do this CD-ROM game. It's already a game you've worked on. You worked on Mixed Up Mother Goose. Well, now we're going to take those tracks and we're going to use higher end uh, instruments, not the sound cards. And we're going to record the children's choir with that as well. And I went, I'm on board. So uh, it kind of went back to when I had my own gear, when I had the Matrix and the and the, the Matrix uh, module and the piano module and the, the Yamaha module. We kind of did that. We Mark and I combined our gear together to find out the best module that would emulate certain instruments better. And so when we were recording, uh, we, we, uh, we figured out at the beginning, before we went down to the recording studio, which modules were going to work. And uh, uh, we uh, reformatted all the tracks from, or repurposed all the tracks from the uh, Mixed Up Mother Goose uh, floppy drive game so that they would work in a standalone CD audio format. And after Mark kind of went over it and said, yeah, that, that's going to work. And we wrote out the parts for the kids' choir, uh, making sure that everything was in a key that they could sing in. That's, uh, that's when we went into the studio. Uh, we recorded the, um, the instruments from our personal racks uh, first. Then we brought in the kids' choir. And uh, Mark's wife, uh, Debbie, I think it is, was the leader of the kids' choir in their church, she taught them how to sing the music. She brought them in. She conducted them during that session, and it turned out to be really great. So we put each one of those recordings as a separate track on the CD, as you would in regular CDs that you put in the player. But then the first track is called the data track. And all they did in the game engine was when this event, when the player finishes this event, trigger track 12, and it would play. So it wasn't as groundbreaking as... Some might think it was. It was just we were one of the first ones. To, we were the first one to do it. Like Sierra seemed to do a lot of that with their titles, kind of upgrade them when a CD-ROM came out or, or remake their own versions. What was it like uh, with MIDI coming in and kind of being able to expand those soundtracks and also be able to work with more space on the CD-ROM? Right. The, um, the MIDI tracks, of course, took up very, very little room on the CD-ROM. So that left more room for voice acting. And instead of having simulated sound effects from the synthesizer, from the MT32 or the Sound Blaster card, they could record actual sound effects. So we we found a way to fill up those CD-ROM game discs uh, quite quickly. But um, we continued to work on using MIDI the whole time I was there. It was only after I left that where they were doing very high-end stuff like... Uh, 
Phantasmagoria, which had a lot of, as you know, FMV and, and streaming audio and ticking up seven CD-ROMs. So writing for these different games didn't really change all that much. I find it interesting that, you know, you mentioned the MT32 there and, you know, MIDI in particular, because, you know, there was a huge change from the mid-80s to the mid-90s in PC gaming. I remember, you know, when I first saw PC gaming, it was all uh, just, you know, the built-in PC speaker was what most people played audio from. And you think having those advanced MIDI soundtracks helped to drive the adoption of stuff like, you know, the MT32 and then eventually ad-libs and sound cards like that? Well, yeah, that was part of uh, Sierra's DNA is that they were always trying to push push the technology forward, especially with sound when I got there. Like you said, everything was PC speaker. And then AdLib came out with their their FM synthesis card. And I, re- I even remember the ads, this card will blow your mind. And it's like, yeah, if you listen to FM synthesis compared to uh, to the PC speaker, yeah, what, that might blow your mind. But it really wasn't a very powerful <laughs> uh, sound card when you compare it to uh, some of the other things that I mentioned earlier. But it did give us a way to lead where the industry was going to go instead of following somebody else. There were other companies who were trying to stream digital audio through the PC speaker, and it was a very CPU-intensive process. Uh, but Ken Williams, I've always credited Ken Williams with being able to see 10 years into the future and maybe even 20 years in the future. He knew that someday those sound cards would become affordable, that we need to support them, we need to drive that market. And he did the same thing with uh, VGA cards when we had mostly EGA games. Mm. And there was a point in Sierra's uh, history where they said, okay, we want to push the VGA uh, technology forward. We're going to re- redo several of our games, our classic games, to, to do that. So I credit uh, Ken Williams with not only creating an industry of home computer games, but driving it forward as fast as the market would allow. Well, obviously, I mean, the Quest games were legendary. And what kind of your memories of working on that then? Did you have any particular favorite titles that you worked on in that series? Well, the whole uh, Quest line of games was very much like motion picture style thinking uh, in putting together the music for those kinds of games. Uh, I'll tell you why I got interested in composing in the first place, and that is uh, my mother and I were... uh, we're movie-going buddies. Uh, we saw several movies growing up that the whole family wouldn't be interested in, but she knew I was interested in, in motion pictures. And she took me to go see the movie Patton with George C. Scott playing General Patton. The audio soundtrack for that was created by Jerry Goldsmith, and it, it's got some very memorable uh, music cues in it. And after watching that movie and hearing the music, I came out of that theater thinking, I have got to be a composer. I have got to learn how to do all of this. So when the chance to come to work for Sierra came about and I was a little bit familiar with their their format, writing for adventure games felt very much like, oh, I get a chance to write like I was writing for motion picture. And that's kind of how I approached it, making sure that certain characters had certain themes, that, um, that the scene on the screen would be matched by the psychological feeling coming from the music. So writing for Quest games was like right up my alley. I just loved it. We tried our hand at a few other things. We had that board game, the Keeping Up with Jones, or Jones on the Fast Lane. Keeping Up with Jones was, a, was the original title. Jones on the Fast Lane was kind of a board game, and they, I, that was a different approach. Uh, I worked on Oil's Well. It was kind of a recreation of an arcade game that Sierra uh, owned, and that was you know arcade style. So it was. I, I got a chance to work on many, many different kinds of games, 
uh, as a musician, but I always love working on the adventure games. How did you end up kind of developing your skills and becoming a producer and moving into the uh, area of games? Wow. Uh, Well, (laughs) I actually only designed one game as a designer, uh, and that's after I left Sierra. Uh, Only after I left Sierra uh, to go to work with uh, Tsunami. And uh, I joined Tsunami on the condition like, okay, I'd like to come to work for you, but I'd also like to expand. I'm very interested in becoming a game designer. So I joined with that with that agreement and uh, Sonami lived up to its agreement and let me be the designer for Return to Ringworld, which was an adve- another point adventure, point and click adventure based on the Larry Niven series of, of uh, books. But um, I kind of reached a point at Sierra where I was at the top of the salary that was available to musicians. And I thought, well, let me, let me see if I can either become a game designer or a programmer. I kind of had this fork in the road in my career and the opportunity to do game design and then later producing kind of came first. And I looked back at that and kind of wished I'd made a decision to to go the other way, but the grass is always greener, as they say. I found out that being a musician, you have to organize your thoughts a lot more when you're focused on producing music and working with a team of like-minded people to create the recording of the music. That kind of thinking, I think, helped me organized my thoughts well enough to where I could become a pretty good game producer. And my first real shot at being a game producer and not the designer was over at Interplay. I got to work on several titles there as the game producer. And Alan Pavlish, my manager over there, was very generous, taking me under his wing, showing me how things worked, how to be a good producer. And uh, it put me on uh, a trajectory I never really thought I would be going in. And that was to be working on games that uh, many, many games over the course of my career that I could go into the store and see on the shelf. One of the greatest high points of my career was working with the group that produced Roller Coaster Tycoon 3. I got to be the mm-hmm. producer for that series. And uh, I, I long to go back to working on that particular title. Let me know, jumping back a bit to when you joined Tsunami Media, that I know there's a lot of ex-Sierra staff there from what I've read. I mean, was it a big change in your working style and what was the company very different to Sierra or did it feel quite familiar? Um, well, because it was it was launched with uh, several Sierra alumni, it was very much the same kind of feeling. The idea was like, hey, we're really smart. We're really bright. We're really talented. We can duplicate that magic. And uh, it turns out maybe magic is not something that strikes twice. But the working environment was very familiar. Uh, we developed games the same way we developed them when I was at Sierra. I would work with the leads on the project and supply the needs of various scenes that they saw that they uh, that they had uh, music and sound effects need for. We did do a lot of voice uh, voice recording sessions. And uh, if I my first time kind of directing a voice recording session was with Tsunami. Now that I think about it, we recorded at a studio in in, in Fresno. Uh, for several of our games, and all of our games were released on on CD-ROM, so we took advantage of that space. So it felt very familiar. Um, I just, I'm not sure. I, I think there was the there was the lawsuit going on. Ken Williams was suing the founder of Tsunami, Ed Heimbachel, and they just kept uh, each other in court the whole time I was at, at uh, Tsunami. And uh, I think we probably could have been a fairly good rival against Sierra had had that lawsuit not been been part of the the whole mix. I think in the end, uh, Tsunami ended up 
agreeing not to make adventure games. So they made things like Flash Traffic and uh, and Man Enough, and and I think they even tried to make a, a an arcade game. Yeah, I was going to say that um, kind of those those adventure titles and stuff. It started to change, and it was like all about the realism and like um, uh, Blue Force. You know that had that had these uh, digitized <laughs> characters in it and stuff. Uh, did you see that it was kind of going the way of FMV and it was it was it was starting to become more of a, a kind of interactive experience, uh, uh, less kind of hand drawn. You know, that's a really good point. I hadn't really thought about that before, but things we were doing on Blue Force, as you mentioned, we filmed people on our staff in front of a blue screen. And they were given a script of something like uh, the rhubarb always tastes better in the summer, you know, something like that that would make our lips look like we were saying anything. Uh, then they digitized that and turned it into a, a, a repeating animation cycle with whatever text was on the screen. But filming in front of a blue screen was kind of an eye opener because Sierra was still working on uh, Phantasmagoria. And I'd heard that they had a full blue screen set up over there. And it made me start thinking that there was a possibility we could have real real world objects in games without having to render them or create them, like you said, by hand. The only time I ever got to see that was with the faces that were recorded in front of the, group, the, the blue screen. Now, there is something that Blue Force did that no other game did before that, and I think ever since then. But we had a coupon in the box that said, if you if you record your videotape of your head saying these lines on a neutral background, we'll put you in the game. And and we had about a dozen takers <laughs> of that. And and it, all it was is we take their the videotape, we digitize it. The uh, artist would uh, like touch it up to make sure that it it was you know the right number of frames and the right number of pixels and everything. And then we could put them in the game. We send them a disc back saying, hey, put this in and uh, press this command, and you'll be able to see yourself in the game. Uh, like I said, I don't think any other companies try to do that. So that was one way that Tsunami was trying to set itself apart was to add just a, the next layer of realism to their games. And it was a uh, it was it was pretty similar to Police Quest, and a uh, uh, Police Quest also went mm-hmm. into that kind of FMV whole area with like SWAT. Sure, uh, that was Daryl Gates, the the former uh, Los Angeles uh, police captain. I think that was his his position. Jim Walls um, had left who was the designer for Police Quest uh, and actually worked with me and the rest of the Tsunami group on uh, on Blue Force. And he's a, he's a great guy to work with. He's very smart and makes some really good puzzles and very familiar with police uh, procedures. So that game was mainly to teach police procedures, but also to, uh, to roll out a story, which I thought was pretty nice. Well, one ambitious game from Tsunami was um, Return to Ringworld, which um, obviously based on Larry Niven's sci-fi series and you know I remember they getting a lot of love at the time you know people much preferred it over the uh, the prequel to that game and it because it was quite advanced in the way that it was one of the first games to switch characters and you had these independent storylines that were going on as well I mean was that quite a challenge you know you essentially were making lots of different games all kind of tied together I guess wow well first of all I'm impressed that you know that much about that game uh <laughs> That was one of the things that I wanted to try that I thought had never been done before. Now, there was an earlier game, uh, Maniac Mansion, I think it was, where you had several different characters that you could switch between at any time, but it was a single it was a single storyline. So what I wanted to do was, well, here was the problem I saw that I was trying to solve. If you're playing a game, a Sierra game or an adventure game, even LucasArts game, 
and you're playing along and you get to a puzzle and you can't solve the puzzle, you're stuck. You can't go any further in the game. And to me, that that was one of the biggest flaws of adventure games is that there was just no other way. There was no alternate way to for the player to get to the solution of the game. And so I thought, well, what would be what would be a way to solve that problem? And I, I thought, well, let me give the player the ability to switch between four different characters, each with their own storyline. Maybe after a while thinking about it, you can go back to the original character, solve that puzzle and move the, the story forward. And so we created four different storylines, each with their own plot. And then they would meet at the end together at, at some central place. And I, I, I don't know if it was that much more complicated than a regular game, because it was it would be like if you were in Larry, one of the Larry games where you started out as Larry and then you play, you know, one of the female characters and then you go back to playing Larry. It was kind of like that, but just giving the player the ability to do those in parallel. So um, the uh, the engineers who put that capability together said, oh, yeah, we can do that. No problem. And so we we designed the whole game with that in mind. And I I had never heard anybody talk about how they appreciated the ability to be able to switch between characters. You're, you're really actually the, the only ones who ever talked about that. So thank you. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah, it was a, very unique, I thought, at the time. So I was a big fan of, you know, all the LucasArts games and stuff as well, but you didn't really see that in other point-and-click games. Yeah, that I think <laughs> I haven't played it in, uh, in several decades, so I can't remember. But I also didn't like another big flaw that I didn't like in the Sierra games was the try and die puzzle where you go down. Yeah. yeah, And then you die and you go, okay, I'm not going to go in that direction again. That felt that could be improved on. So I think in my game, I, you couldn't die. If I remember correctly, you just reached a point where you couldn't proceed any further. And that Mm -hmm. was, that was something that LucasArts did wonderfully. I don't remember my character ever dying in a LucasArts game. Well, you ended up kind of, fully diving in tsunami to uh, uh fmv world and like silent steel you worked on and uh flash traffic city of angels as well uh what 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 were your memories of those titles and was it like a a full kind of tv studio or uh, i guess it's not known that i left tsunami before they were full bore into that i had written some pieces i think for flash traffic that may have been reused in the other game uh that you mentioned the other fmv game but I, I looked at the legal troubles that Tsunami was going through with Ken Williams, the fact that it had made this man enough game and didn't sell well. I just didn't have a lot of confidence that uh, Tsunami was going to be able to survive. And so I decided maybe it's time for me to, <laughs> to start looking elsewhere. I've learned a lot at Tsunami and maybe I can take that new knowledge to go to work somewhere else. So a friend of mine had gone to work over at Interplay and recommended that they interview me and they did and they hired me. But it was that there was a period of time between starting to work at Interplay and leaving Tsunami that I I was independent contractor again to kind of pay the bills until the um, until the Interplay job kicked in, and so I wrote some continued to write some music for Tsunami, but I was not involved at all with the persons uh, developing the game. I do hear that they had some pretty nice equipment to edit all the video on, but I other than that I don't know. It's quite randomly. I was playing um, Flash Traffic City of Angels at the weekend. That's three CD-ROMs that came on, which was massive for the time. And you mentioned Man Enough as well, which I'm not sure how many people know that game. But again, you know, because I've been playing these old FMV games before we spoke. And it was um, a weird game. I mean, it was called a a dating simulator. Um, And playing that through at the weekend, I mean, there were lines in there that made Leisure Suit Larry look, you know, way mature. 
I mean, what, what did you think of that as a concept then? I mean, were you on board with their ideas? Well, I was open-minded and I, and I always assumed that there were smarter brains than mine uh, making these decisions. Uh, Ed Heimbuckle, who ha- had a friend uh, who pitched this idea of a dating simulation. And so the friend was involved a little bit in, uh, in the development, mainly just writing the storylines and, and the, uh, and the, and the, and the dialogue from what I recall. And then some decision trees, which that game is nothing but decision trees. And mm-hmm. as most FMV games are, again, I was kind of appalled at the theme because hey, we, you know, it's the nineties. We don't talk about women that way. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, um, but they, they got Miss California to pose for the cover and uh, to promote the game and to, to be in all of our ads. And I thought, okay, these are smart people. They know what they're doing. And my job was just to make sure that we got the, we got it done in time. We could get it out for Christmas and we could, uh, you know, get it on the CD-ROM, uh, worked lots of hard, long hours on that. And, uh, and when it came out, I kind of went, well, whatever happens, it happens. And, uh, it kind of tarnished Tsunami's, uh, reputation for a while. When I went to work for Interplay, one of the mm-hmm. people who interviewed me said, oh, yeah, that's that company. That's the Man Enough company. I don't think I like them. Oh, no. And I thought, oh, well, I guess I'm not going to get hired by Interplay. But <laughs> but they hired me anyway. <laughs> well, one thing when I was uh, checking your profile on Moby Games, actually, it mentioned um, that, you, that you work with the uh, Miracle Piano teaching system, which uh, was pretty amazing back in the days. How did you get involved with that? And like just having a kind of, you know, piano learning teaching system on a console. First of all, the short answer is yes, I loved it. It was an amazing uh, project to be part of. I remember seeing the TV ads for the Christmas uh, for the Christmas sales period, and it almost brought a tear to my eye. We're going to teach kids how to play the piano, and we're going to use we're going to have an interactive uh, lessons that they can they can learn to play, they can learn to read notes, and learn how to finger the keyboard, and then. We'll give them song packs where uh, the background is kind of like karaoke, but for instruments. Or back in those days, we had a series of uh, recordings called um, Minus One was the, the series of, of recordings where if you were the trumpet player, this was a whole band playing behind you and you played the trumpet part, kind of like what karaoke is. Um, and I, I thought the Miracle Keyboard is an amazing uh, amazing idea teaching kids how to play without having to, you know, spend a thousand dollars on a piano and, and expensive uh, lessons. And a friend of mine who had connections with another company h- hooked me up and they said, well, software Toolworks, I think that's the group that were, was doing that game. Uh, they need, they need a music guy right, right now. Can you give them a call? I, I'm not sure what they want to do. So I gave him a call, told him who I was. And they said, Oh, you're that King's quest guy. Yeah. We'd like to talk to you. So working at the Sierra at Sierra on their music kind of gave me a calling card, a little bit of a marquee calling card when I was reaching out to, to expand my, my influence over the <laughs> over music in the game industry. And uh, the guys that uh, at software Toolworks works uh, really liked what they heard. And they said, okay, here, here, we'll, we'll commission you a thousand dollars to give us two song packs. Uh, and when you deliver the second one, you'll go, you'll get the second thousand dollars. And uh, I got a miracle keyboard. I hooked it up to my, my computer and just worked on these, uh, these song packs. I think there were five songs in each song pack uh, that, so the miracle keyboard would play the accompaniment for you. And then you could play on the keyboard to play the notes as they appeared on screen. 
and I I thought that that was going to go far, but unfortunately, it was um, didn't it didn't have a very wide audience. And uh, as with most technology for the home computer, it went uh, it went obsolete fairly quickly, <laughs> unfortunately. Speaking of kind of you know obscure systems that you worked on, I read that you did some uh, Virtual Boy titles. Oh, mercy! Um, <laughs> and and that is often you know a console that's you know people talk about the graphics, but never really the the audio of that machine. I mean, what did you think of it, and what was it like to to compose for, and what did you work on on the Virtual Boy? There was a company called Futurescape, uh, and uh, me and the gentleman who owned that company are still in contact today. He's a good guy, and uh, he was. He, this is when the Virtual Boy was just coming out. He'd gotten a development kit. He had like a side-scrolling game that he wanted to develop for it, and uh, so I, I created like four or five tracks to, just to get him started, so he could put together the entire game. It, both the gameplay and the uh, and the music, and I think he just used a for sound effects. I think he just used whatever sound library came was available at the time for the Virtual Boy. After about two and a half months of development, uh, he decided to call it quits. I think he saw the writing on the wall that the Virtual Boy was not going to uh, not to resonate with players. So there are four or five tracks of music that I wrote for some side scroller shooter game that. Uh, I will probably never never see the light of day, and I don't have copies of any of that music. You know, hard yeah, drive. I think there are only like there are only twenty two games actually came out on the system in the end. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he he probably dodged, dodged a bullet. You know, spending a lot of money on a, on something that wasn't a sure bet was was not wise. Well, you ended up uh, working with EA doing some production, and uh, you did a lot of Star Trek titles as well. Like, did your kind of space quest history help with that? And were you a uh, a fan of Star Trek. Well, or? I am one of the biggest Star Trek fans you'll ever know. I I don't dress up and go to Star Trek conventions, but I am a fan of the show very much. Still am today. But uh, actually, the Star Trek games were done at Interplay. Electronic Arts came later when I was part of Westwood. The and there were some Star Trek games being developed there, so I'll kind of cover both sides of that that story. Yes, when I went to Interplay, they were they were aware of my adventure game history and had already done Star Trek 25th Anniversary and Star Trek Judgment Rights. And one of the first projects that I worked on while I was there was to take the floppy disk game and the accompanying movie pack that you could buy separately, which added 10 more megs of of, uh, animations and sound effects to the original game, take those and put them on CD-ROM, record all the voice actors, hire a company, uh, a game development house to take the source code, add add hooks to all the audio files and to... uh, uh, animating heads, put that together into CD package and uh, and release it. And then, oh, and by the way, we'd like to make this a collector's edition. So why don't you do a separate CD that has interviews? So I interviewed people who worked on the original game. We uh, were able to get an interview with Leonard Nimoy. And um, I also got to go up to Majel Roddenberry's house up in, um, where, what's that place called? It's above Beverly Hills. It's... Um, I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but I, I got to go up there and look through all the different tapes that they had available. And she gave me permission to use what's called the red sweater interview of Gene Roddenberry. And we were the first ones to, to release that footage. You can get it now on, on YouTube. We put it on a CD-ROM. We made a, like a menu that looked like the bridge of the enterprise. And if, if you turn the camera left to right, it gave you access to various parts of the menu, various parts of the menu. And we released that in conjunction with the game disc that had all the voice actors and from the original series together and called it the 
CD-ROM collector's edition because collector's editions were the thing. I was lucky uh, because um, they said, hey, uh, because you worked on the game, you get to have one of the ones that come off the come off the assembly line first. You, Brian Fargo already gets number one and so-and-so already gets number two. Which number do you want? I said, well, give me the one that number, serial number is 1701. <laughs> so I, I got uh, that game and its original shrink wrap with the serial number 1701. Uh, a few years ago, there was a charity that I really supported, and I, I uh, offered this single copy of Star Trek Judgment Right CD-ROM Collector's Edition uh, up for auction so they could raise money for their charity. And so it's it's in a home that appreciates it. That's awesome. And uh, you, you mentioned Westwood there as well. And uh, I hear you were a fan of the kind of way that they did Command and Conquer, and you ended up getting involved... Um, with Knox as well. Um, what, what was that like to kind of work? Oh, on a well, type? Um, like other places where I've been hired, the first thing they do is they give you a project that somebody else either left and left behind or had driven off the rails and needed to be rescued. So uh, I picked up, I picked up a couple games that were still in development from external developers and uh, brought those either to the finish line or to a point where we could sever uh, the relationship with the developer. Cause it, the game was just not you know, good enough. So we gave them the rights back to their game. And so I, I was the producer for a lot of games that are already in progress. And then Knox, the team who, who had developed Knox, um, they had developed this amazing multiplayer game and, uh, and Westwood picked them up saying, let's take what they've done and see if we can't make a single player game out of it. So I became the producer for the single player uh, game experience. And, um, kind of help keep track of all the milestones with the internal team. They were very self-driven, so I didn't have to be involved too much with them. But I was uh, I was tasked with coordinating the recording sessions with the actors, the voice actors who were in that game. Uh, so I got to meet uh, the actor who played uh, Stifler on American Pie. I got to meet, uh, I got to meet the actor who played <laughs> yeah. Elaine's boss on Seinfeld. And uh, while we were recording at that particular studio, I practically bumped into and collided with Don LaFontaine, the voice of in a world, that guy. So working with Westwood gave me a chance to expand um, you know, my skill set in doing different things. And so directing these, uh, these voiceover sessions for Westwood and for Knox was also a big part of what I did. I also coordinated the efforts for localizing that game. I think at the time it was the it was the it was the one electronic arts game that had the most languages for the most territories released on day one. So I, mm-hmm. I played a part in making sure that the whole world can play Knox on the first day in their own language. Well, I know in 2000, you went to Midway to be a senior producer there, and they were in that kind of era when they were moving from the arcade market you know, into the home market. And uh, you're working on um, launch titles for the, the Xbox, which was obviously about to launch then. What was that system like to develop on then? I mean, I know it was very similar to PC architecture at its heart. I mean, what did you think of the Xbox when you first got your hands on it? Oh, wow. Well, first of all, like you said, the Xbox was fairly easy to work for because uh, if you if you were a programmer and you developed for DirectX on Windows, there was very little new things to learn. And so the, the expense, of course, was in the development systems, which I think were like 10 grand at the time. So being there at the beginning was, was kind of cool. I remember visiting the Xbox campus, uh, me and Lee Jacobson, were invited up to uh, Xbox up in up in Microsoft's campus, and we toured the facility and we talked to the guys who were actually you know 
creating prototypes of the motherboard that would go into that box. It was very cool. Uh, even one of the engineers said, hey, uh, do you care if this game supports, um, you know, like uh, 720, 720p? And I, I didn't know what 720p at the time was. And I said, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I just want to play it on my regular TV set. And he said, oh, that's 480i, uh, 480i. So, yeah, we'll take that into consideration. <laughs> so I had I actually was talking to the guy who was creating the, the video um, capabilities of that motherboard. But what oh, was wow. really revealing is um, – our our uh, account manager took us into a room where all these different prototypes of the game controller were, and they had they had mockups made of clay. They had drawings on they had drawings that were posted up on whiteboards in the room, and uh, they handed me the one that was going to ship with the original Xbox. And I held it in my hand, and he says, "So what do you think?" And I'm trying to be nice, and I said, "Is this the one that's going to ship?" <laughs> <laughs> and if the Duke, <laughs> the Duke, yes, exactly. Yeah. You know exactly where I'm going with this. And, uh, and the account manager said, Oh yes, we've, we've focus test this. We, we, we feel like this is the best way to the players can do input. And I, in my mind, I'm going, this is crap. <laughs> you should have, <laughs> you should have made a game controller that was just like the one that the game developers had, which was a mad cats PS2 clone controller. And, uh, but I just said, well, okay, I, I guess, you know, you know, in my mind, I'm going, you best, I guess you know better than I do. And I, I just hand the controller back to him and said, well, okay, thanks for letting me see, let me see it. So on the outside, I'm going, oh, okay, nice. All right. Good luck. <laughs> and in my brain, I'm going, no, no, don't ship with that. And of course they shipped with the Duke and it was, uh, it was widely mocked, but developing for the Xbox, what Midway was trying to do is they were very, very big in the coin-op. So if you played Joust over at a drugstore or a snack store or, um, you know, um, Gauntlet or any of these other titles, those were Midway games. Uh, uh, Galaxia was another one. And uh, they were trying – they saw the home market as something they wanted to get into and thought, well, we'll just repurpose a lot of our old content and put it on the PlayStation 2 and on the Xbox and we'll we'll get our feet wet in the home market with t- titles like that. So those are my two titles when I came on. Well, that was my one title when I first came on was to bring um, a, a coin-op game called Arctic Thunder, which was actually, you can still find it in pizza parlors around the U.S. Uh, and take that game, take it to a developer, uh, have them take all the source code and then make an upgrade path for the player and maybe make it multiplayer on the same console. After about a year of development, we got the game ready for for launch uh, shortly. It was not day and date with Xbox, but it was very, very shortly after. And so um, we submitted that game and we're uh, one of the few, one of the third party, not really launch title, but like within a month of the Xbox coming out. It was a lot of fun because Microsoft was, was getting their feet wet in the home console market and were trying to figure out their own processes. If anybody listening is familiar with making games for the Sony PlayStation, they have very strict rules and very strict guidelines. And Xbox mm-hmm. was still trying to figure those out. So these games were being developed when we could probably get away with a few things that we couldn't get away with now. And uh, Midway kind of got hold of uh, Cygnosis's uh, mid-developed PS2 catalog as well. Like uh, we we were quite big fans of Cygnosis and stuff. What was it? What was it like to kind of finish off those titles? And uh... well, as you allude to, we picked that up midstream from uh, from Sony. They were selling off everything that was in development for the PS for the original PlayStation. It was like almost immediately after I got hired. That was what came. That's what that was the project that came to me. I didn't visit any of the developers. 
there was no guidance for me. I just was there to make sure that we took delivery of, of the milestones, had them play tested, going through them and giving feedback. And then once we reached um, a point where the game was releasable to coordinate receiving the data, submitting it to Sony, making sure that manufacturing happened and everything went to the marketing part. So I was, uh, I was playing more, I was playing more of a, like a line producer role at, at Midway at the beginning. And so the games, I really love the games that Cygnosis had done. They had the, they had Team Buddies, which was a fun little multiplayer game. There was the um, the Colony Wars game, which I still play. I, I still have a copy of that and will still play it. A few others. I can't remember all of Oh, there was a driving, I think it was a driving uh, demolition derby type game, I think was one of them. And uh, we got those out for Christmas and and uh, the company made money on very little effort. It was, it was kind of nice to get my feet wet with Midway that way. Well, kind of, you know, kind of going forward to today, I know that you were at um, Konami and you, you left there about a year ago and it's, I know you're at New York Times now. I mean, are you still involved in the gaming industry at all or any plans to do any more? Well, my, uh, my start at Konami, I had uh, continued to work uh, in other games on other consoles, moving into the online space. And I worked for a, uh, an MMO company uh, in the mid 2000s, 2008 to 2012, I think it was, where we were working on a game called Rift. And I was one of a team of producers that was developing that game. After they had some layoffs, um, were struggling with some decisions that they'd made that didn't quite pan out. Uh, my wife and I sat down and said, okay, I could probably find another job in this industry really easy, but where would you like to live? What do you want to, what do you want to do? And she said, well, you know, I, I grew up in Las Vegas. My parents are still there. My siblings are still there. Why don't we just go there? They have a game development community but they make slot machine games. And I thought, well, all right, let's give that a shot. So I, we moved to Vegas without a job. And um, as as you might imagine, people from the video game industry also propagate over to slot machine games. So I had a few connections. Uh, I was first hired by a company called Shuffle Master. If you go into a casino and you go to the table games and any table game that has an automated shuffling mechanism, 95% of the time that's made by Shuffle Master. So I worked for them and they were trying to release online poker in the US, mm. be among the, the 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 beginning of that what they perceived as a as a pent-up demand. Now there was online poker up to about 2011, I think it was. Congress passed a law making it illegal to do online gambling with offshore providers. And Shuffle Master perceived that there was a pent-up demand. So when I got there in 2013, we're gambling quite a bit of uh, the effort of the company to bring online poker to the U.S., starting in Nevada, then over into New Jersey, and then to other states as they would make them legal. I think Pennsylvania was going to be third on that. And it was in the process of rolling that in, rolling online poker out in Nevada that uh, the company got acquired by Bally Technologies, which uh, is not related to the Bally Casino or Bally anything else. They were self-contained. They just happened to have the same name because they had the same founder. They wanted to acquire Shuffle Master to get the rights to that shuffle, that mechanical shuffler and nothing else. So a lot of the other things that were not part of the core business got shut down, including um, online poker. So I went over into slot machine development and that's how I ended up over at Konami. Uh, right. So I wasn't in Konami games that made the, you know, Metal Gear Solid. I was in the Konami games that was making the slot machines. So as you mentioned, I ended up at the New York Times. And while I was yeah. at Konami, I was experiencing kind of a, a crisis of working with managers that I 
didn't feel were up to the job. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't mean to be uh, mean or anything, but I, I felt like Konami had made some choices among their management that was going to be bad for the company goals. There was a toxic corporate culture developing there. And I, I knew my days were numbered. And again, because I never, I never deleted anybody from my contacts list in Facebook or on my personal phone. So a friend of mine who had left Konami and went to work somewhere else gave me a, a job listing for <laughs> just like just like how I got my start at Sierra. Hey, here's this job listing for this company that my husband works for, and they're looking for a project manager. Turned out it was New York Times, and I thought I would never get the interview, but they liked the resume because I was I was using uh, Scrum Agile methodology, uh, which they were mm-hmm. big fans of. And if anybody listening understands that. You, you, you'll know that the question you should ask when you first get exposed to this is, why weren't we always doing it this way? But anyway, I, was, I had a lot of experience with that particular framework. And uh, I interviewed, and they liked me, and I seemed like there was a good match personality-wise. I got the job offer on Christmas Eve a year and a half ago. So it was the best, best Christmas gift. And honestly, because the New York Times has a, has a uh, reputation for, for true facts and for honestly trying to make people's lives better, the goals of that company align with my personal goals. I, I really like to make the lives of people around me better with what I do. Uh, but you asked if I had any interest in uh, going back into games. And yes, there's a part of me that wants to do it. I am, I've been working with the guys who created Space Quest to work on Space Venture. That game, they've got some technical challenges that they're working through. And so it's kind of like, okay, the music's on hold until we figure out some of these things. So um, I'm hoping that that game will, will come out because uh, I've still got some, some pieces that they need for that game that they can't put in yet. But I would, I would love to work on music for games again. I, I really miss it. Well, Ken, you know, best of luck with your current projects and uh, hopefully you will get a chance to uh, do some more in the gaming industry again. It's been incredible reminiscing with you and hearing some of your amazing stories over the last hour or so. So uh, we really appreciate you coming on and uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you. The pleasure has been mine as well. And uh, I hope uh, people listening uh, get a chance to kind of delve into some of these. I mean, like you didn't come to this, this interview cold. You found out you found all the information you needed for the interview on the internet and I hope that it spurs an interest in some of the some more of these details that we talked about.